Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. We've got COVID mania, to be quite honest. We mustn't joke about these things, but, no. you know, as we often say on Planet Normal, you've got to laugh, right? You've got to laugh at times like this. Three. We stopped following the science even when we had the data. Two. The love of my life I have not been able to hold in my arms since March. Liam, Liam can you read the next bit? One. We have lift off. And we have lift off again. Another trip to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And as we touch down on Planet Normal, gaining some perspective on planet Earth, what do we see? We see a British government struggling to assert its new wave of anti-Covid rules and regulations. We see a prediction, sorry, a scenario, (laughs) presented by Downing Street just over a week ago that the UK would reach 50,000 new Covid infections a day by mid-October with cases doubling every seven days, coming under serious scrutiny. Yes, the case numbers look like a camel with two humps, but properly scaled in terms of tests done, the second hump's more like a bee sting. We're not saying this virus isn't dangerous, we're not saying we don't need to take precautions and protect the elderly and vulnerable, but Alison, it seems to me that at Westminster, across the country, the debate about our Covid response has started to shift. It certainly has, Liam. I mean, depending on your point of view, either the high point or the low point of the week was the Prime Minister being unable to remember his own regulations for the North East, which I'm sure will have uh, gone down like a bucket of the proverbial in Newcastle. Away the lads. (laughs) Away the lads. In fact, the Prime Minister doesn't know whether you're allowed to gather with your mates outside, given that um, Newcastle's looking down the barrel of losing 10,000 hospitality jobs. And I was both delighted and amazed to discover that the nighttime economy in Newcastle is worth £300 million pounds a year. So they are what... world-class party animals, <laughs> those Geordies. I salute them and everything they do for the British economy. Putting away <laughs> so many cocktails when you're not wearing any tights. I mean, you know... Or all... anything, a T-shirt in the middle of February. <laughs> away the lasses. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I think that the, the Valance, Witty, the now infamous press conference last week, there's been a lot of pushback against that. And what we're seeing now is the Parliament is uh, awaking from its trusting slumber and really getting quite exercised. So we had a marvellous speech this week from Sir Desmond Sway. I don't know if you, don't know if you saw it, I Liam. Did. I mean, He's grown some it- mutton chops, hasn't he? He absolutely has, but absolutely went off Sir Desmond, you know, all barrels blazing, that witty and valent should have been a sackable offence, showing the public that ludicrous graph and so on. But it's not just the awkward squad, and that's what's so interesting. We've seen people like Mark Harper, you know, former chief whip. Former chief whip. Very dapper. He's got a he's he's got a sort of side parting welded into his head, hasn't he? 
He has. He's one of the sort of Nigel Haver school of Tory politicians that I rather like. And he said, Mark Harper said on Twitter that the latest regulations signed off by a minister at 5pm on Sunday came into force only seven hours later, containing some very, very serious powers that were not in statements made to Parliament the previous week. So what we saw this week was a, an attempt to by Graham Brady to push through this amendment so MPs could get back a bit of control over some of these measures and they cobbled together on Wednesday a bit of a kind of climb down from the government although I I don't know what you felt Matt Hancock made a statement about it saying that for significant national measures affecting the whole of England and the UK wide we will consult parliament and where possible hold votes before but uh, as we're looking at mainly regional lockdowns at the moment some probably more justified than others. I mean, my homeland, Wales, is about between two thirds and three quarters under lockdown with a tiny number, tiny number of deaths. And that seems to me to be absolutely ludicrous. But anyway, uh, this climb down, I'm I'm not sure it will satisfy the people who are really worried that Parliament is being abused. And of course, we saw perhaps most significantly, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, absolutely tearing a strip out of the government, stinging rebuke to the government about showing contempt for Parliament. He did, tearing a strip out of the government on Wednesday. Graham Brady, of course, is the chairman of the 1922 Backbench Committee. He's an incredibly sane man, very well respected across the House. And he was pushing for Parliament to have more say over these lockdown measures, not least given the civil liberties implications involved. In the end, Lindsay Hall didn't call the rebel amendment that we talked about on Planet Normal last week because he could see a deal was being done. And as we said before we recorded, Alison, he doesn't really want to turn into John Burko where amendment selection becomes one of the major variables in politics. But I, I'm not sure it's going to stand the test of time, as you say, because a lot of the lockdowns we're seeing are regional rather than national. Uh, and also what the government has conceded is that they will announce they're going to introduce something in a week, say, and bring it into law. And then Parliament can have a vote on it during that interim week. So it's kind of lawmaking the wrong way round, using emergency measures. Yes, but using Parliament to sort of retrospectively endorse them, if you like. We've delayed the, the recording of Planet Normal this mm. week because we wanted to see Boris Johnson's press conference. And what I really thought that press conference was about, you and I were sitting there, weren't we, sort of pencils poised mm. like the old school reporters that we are waiting for the headline. the headline. But there, mm. there wasn't really a headline. What it was was an attempt to kind of wrest back that analytical uh, momentum, if you like, from a lot of scientists over the last week or so, particularly Shinetra Gupta, who we had on Planet Normal last week, Carl Hennigan, the Oxford duo, who have poured a lot of scepticism on the idea of an enduring lockdown, mm. pointing out the damage that lockdown does, the deaths that lockdown causes. In light of that estimate, scenario, prediction, uh, spin, whatever you want to call it, that we're heading for 50,000 cases a day by the middle of October, that just hasn't happened. It just hasn't happened. Yes, the day of the press conference, there was a spike up to 7,000. But if you look at the moving average over the last seven days, it's still very low on much, much more testing. If we were going to double to 50,000 by mid-October, we'd need to be close to 15,000 cases a day 
by now, eight days on from that press conference on the September the 21st, and the seven-day moving average is less than half of that. And if you look at the death numbers, of course, which is this is all about, and hospitalizations, this is my Velma moment. I'm trying to wrest back the Velma mantle from you. <laughs> oh, Scooby I can't do is the fighting noise. back. Joe. <laughs> 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 so Velma moment. But this is actually a Scooby snack moment. You can be shaggy. You, you, you... Hey, Scoobs! All right, I'll be, I'll be shaggy. <laughs> In intellectual capacity and dress sense, you are far more shaggy than Velma. Trust me, mate. <laughs> well, you ain't Daphne, love. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so daily, hosp- we, we mustn't joke about these things. But you know, no. as we as we often say on Planet Normal, you got to laugh, right? You got to you, laugh. You got to yeah. laugh at times like this. Mm. If the Brits can't laugh at times like this, then when can we laugh? So daily hospitalizations due to COVID at the height of this pandemic in early April, around 3,000, okay? Now, they're around a tenth of that. Deaths of, from, or related to COVID at their peak, uh, 1,200 roughly per day. Now, the deaths per day, mercifully, are still in double digits. And over the last eight days since that press conference, the average daily death rate has been around 30 compared to 1,200 at the height of the pandemic back in April. So, yes, we need to protect our vulnerable. Yes, we need to protect the elderly and help them to protect themselves and others with all kinds of immunity issues, whatever age that they are. But it does still seem to me that that press conference last week with the best will in the world turned out to be a wild overstatement of the danger that we face and I don't think in the press conference we just saw the kind of fight analytical fight back by Boris Johnson, Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance. I don't think they really managed to convince uh, a lot of people, certainly not me, that last week's press conference with that horror graph, as you called it, was mm. justified. No, and I thought they looked slightly on edge. I'm I'm so shocked by how Boris looks, Liam. I he looks like he's seen a ghost, you know, probably his own ghost, bless him. And I think he's very stuck now with this narrative. So he said, there's only one way of doing this. The British people want to fight and defeat this virus. And you think, we listened to Professor Gupta last week explaining that's not what a virus is. You don't fight and defeat the virus, even though... We have a flu virus. Flu in a bad year will still kill 40,000 people, Liam. It's not going to be, there is no magic bullet. So he's stuck with this, you know, we're going to throw our arms around the UK economy. And you think that in the week when they've confirmed that the contraction in the economy was 19.8%. You have to have very big arms to throw around that economy. And I think what's shifting in the debate, I think, is this, we've had the rule of six, which uh, has, you know, caused a lot of problems for restaurants and families and so on. And also this 10 o'clock curfew. Which seems very random, doesn't it? Seems very random. And this week, I mean, just just to pick at random, one of the uh, one of the marvellous criminalising measures that they brought in this week were publicans were told they could be fined £4,000 if they didn't keep singing in the pub below a certain number of decibels. Well, that's that's your social <laughs> life gone, Halligan. All those, all those lacrimose Irish ballads being you know 
belted out down the, you know, the cow and duck. The I mean, fields of Athenry. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I mean. I mean, you're a £4,000 fine, you know, just, just on yourself. And so we've got the growing, dawning realisation of the, you know, terrible numbers of job losses in hospitality and in, in retail and so on. And then the other thing I, I, I was a big thing, a big headline for me was that a million women have missed out on mammograms during oh. lockdown. And that means, tragically, 8,500 mums, sisters, wives, grandmothers will not have been given the cancer diagnosis they would certainly have got, which means they haven't started treatment and they may be condemned to an early death. And those women, the average age for COVID deaths is 81. The women who have missed out on mammograms who will die because the NHS was closed to them will not all be 81. They'll be in the prime of their lives. They'll be in the prime of their lives. They'll be mums. They'll be be often young mums, tragically, right? Young mums. So so this is there. And I noticed at the press conference that Boris had sort of nodded to saying, oh, the NHS is open. And then he said, but if the COVID cases go up, we won't be able to let people with other illnesses into the hospital. And I thought that is just so wrong. They, at vast expense, paid for the Nightingale hospitals. It wasn't beyond the wit of man to have what they used to call infectious diseases hospitals. You could put the COVID cases in one lot of hospitals and put everyone else in the other. And I really objected to him suggesting that if we were responsible for letting COVID cases creep up again, we wouldn't be able to use the hospitals we pay for. That did that struck a chord with me when he said that as well. Chris Whitty, chief medical advisor, said uh, the NHS is open. We want you to go to hospital. We want you to see your GP. And I felt like saying to him, yeah, Chris, come and have a look at the Planet Normal inbox. We have had hundreds, hundreds of emails from... We've mm. we've even had emails from GPs saying that they can't <laughs> see a GP, right? We have. It's completely mad. Yeah, if you, want, if you want GPs to refer people to hospital, then force the GPs who are being paid by the NHS often... To see people, not trying to get some granny to consult them via Zoom. I mean, it's look, lots of our listeners will be GPs who work extremely hard. And I know personally a number of GPs who have done stacanovite work during this lockdown. Mm. But we also know there are an awful lot of GPs who, frankly, are taking the PIWS during this, mm. this environment mm. because they're still seeing patients privately. You've got NHS staff still seeing patients privately and they're not seeing ordinary folk, ordinary NHS patients. It's so difficult to get a doctor's appointment. And to say, oh, we, we don't want you to not use the NHS. I mean, he must know, Chris Whitty must know that institutional hurdles and obstacles and realities on the ground that he is ignoring when he makes that claim. That that is sort of preemptive backside covering, given the the wave of cases of non-COVID related diseases that are coming down the track. But do they know, Liam? You see, increasingly, I mean, we can come on to talk about the, you know, the way that the left has infiltrated the institutions later. But what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot of highly paid scientists 
uh, civil servants, none of this is going to impact on their mortgage, their wage, their small business, is it? So you've got this class, administrative class, who are in a bubble, you know, one of the many bubbles we're all supposed to live in now, which seems to absolutely make them immune to the concerns and the suffering of of ordinary people and i'm getting really i'm getting really sick of it because take another example this week i mean we can lie. i did a, i did a spoof piece in the telegraph about these poor university students you know day yeah. one day 54 day, God, day all, all our, all our yeah. Geordie listeners now they're like stabbing our effigies aren't they with no, needles please do it day 3 in the big brother flat you know sorry, is that the, your Geordie accent no sorry i can't to. I could do I could do Yorkshire, you know. Alistair has not been allowed out for, you know, 17 days to, you know. And, and so what we're seeing is this class of administrators. I mean, you know, my shock statistic of the week. Should I do my Velma Go shock on, statistic of the week? Go on, you've got to do your sound, though. <laughs> so university vice-chancellors, there are six universities in the United Kingdom where the vice chancellors are paid more than £500,000 a year. There are many, many universities. I know it's an astonishing statistic, really. I mean, there they all are. These are educational administrators. They're creaming off huge amounts of money. And I had a conversation with a friend who is an academic. And he said to me he had seen this fiasco coming where all the, you know, the students would arrive and there would be this chaos. And he he had suggested to his university that they should run the first term purely online with an appropriate reduction for the students. And he was told to get back so, in so his box. So students pay less for a, a, a diminished so experience. So students paid less for a diminished yeah. experience. And he, he was told, basically, get lost. We need the fees. So we kettle them into these student residences. They're making about 20 grand a year from each of those kids we're seeing on the news stuck in the halls of residence. And once again, we see this leftist administrative class very happy to have this chaos unfolding as long as they are feathering their own own nests. And young people, we've talked about this. I mean, we, I talked, we talked about this to Professor Gupta, the young people who are not harmed by COVID-19 are paying an extremely heavy price. Not only have they had their A-levels and GCSEs mucked about with, now they're at university and they're more in Guantanamo Bay than in the Ivory Towers, aren't they? And Liam, this week, um, we're actually seeing some of the teaching unions suggesting that next year's exams might be cancelled as well. I mean, it's just outrageous, isn't it? It's just outrageous. So school kids took exams during the Blitz. Yes, yeah. The real clash happened for me this week when you had scientists trying to argue for a less extreme lockdown versus an administrative class when Shinetra Gupta, who you interviewed last week on Planet Normal, the Oxford epidemiologist, went up against Susan uh, Michi, who's a government advisor, uh, who's actually a psychologist from the University of London. On SAGE. Yeah. Well, she's on independent SAGE. She's an advisor to one of the subcommittees to SAGE itself. And you could sense that Susan Michi, who, by the way, is a sort of lifelong communist, literally, her sort of lack of understanding of the human impact of this lockdown it's as if she's trying to sort of kill capitalism and she thinks that's a noble pursuit no if you 
locked down the economy to the extent that we are. I mean, we've just had new GDP numbers come out, a 20% reduction in the size of our economy. Then the deaths of despair that that causes, the psychological impact on the population, the, the, the impact on our productivity going forward with the, the disruption to education. What we've seen asserted over the last week is a, is a renewed kind of even more dogmatic idea mm. that it's either lives or it's livelihoods. You know, you either want a lockdown, which makes you a nice person, or you don't want a lockdown, which means all you care about is money. I thought we got over that, Alison. I thought we got over that ridiculous false dichotomy because economic downturns kill people just as COVID kills people. And you had Shinetra Gupta on the Today programme, trying to square up to Susan mm. Mickey, and it was really, really tough to listen to. She did as best as she could, but she was just sort of faced with the remorseless logic of somebody who has no stake in the economy and whose income and whose uh, livelihood uh, has nothing to do with economically the real world. Yes, and... Matt Hancock did spell it out in the Commons. He said, our strategy is to suppress the virus, support the economy until we get a vaccine. Now, suppressing the virus and supporting the economy, but, you know, you can have one or the other, Liam. You know, you, you, you can't have both. And he makes no attempt to explain. We talked about this pub curfew. I mean, if you try and go to a pub, it's, you know, they're, they're ushering you out of the doors at, at 10 to 10. It's really knocking that sector again for six. And I think you're right. They haven't had the, they pay lip service to the, oh, yes, we must think of all the collateral damage. But they, they don't really. Look, I'm going to do my final Velma stat just to hear you do Scooby once more. Hey, Scoobs! <laughs> So the, so the most reliable source of information during this whole thing, because we know that most of the tests are wrong, the positive tests are hugely out. The Office for National Statistics has been fantastic. And the Office for National Statistics says that COVID-19 is only the 24th most common cause of death in England and Wales. COVID accounted for just 1.4% of all the deaths in August, and that is 482 out of 34,000 deaths. And for this, Liam, for this, Liam, what are we doing to the economy? That context is never provided, is it? No, By never. our broadcasters. And that's why we need you, Velma, to, <laughs> you know, to tackle these pesky kids on television. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the health establishment is really trying to circle the wagons now because we have had in recent weeks very well-respected uh, epidemiologists coming to the fore, like Shanetra, but others too, who've been signing letters, who've been putting their head above their parapet, who've been risking their careers, frankly, and that's why we salute them for their courage, mm, to try and at least get a debate going in amidst all this uncertainty and yet this idea has been spreading that maybe we should be shielding, particularly for older people and everyone else can get on with their lives and keep the economy going. And there seemed to be some kind of movement in that debate. And it became socially acceptable to start to argue that. And then we had the chief executive of the NHS, Simon Stevens, come out and tell The Spectator over this last week, calling this idea of, of, of shielding older people in particular, he called it age-based apartheid. No. In a nutshell, we can't have age-based apartheid across this country. 
I mean, using such an evocative word like apartheid, which is obviously an evil division of people based mm. on their race, but to suggest that shielding vulnerable people so the rest of us can get on with our lives, so, you know, 20, 30, 40-year-olds can come to the fore in the economy, make some money for themselves, try and right some of the massive intergenerational imbalance that we have in this country and elsewhere, so we can keep the economy moving, generating the wealth that drives the NHS that pays Sir Simon Stevens' wages. And when you had leading epidemiologists coming to the fore and starting to say that, at huge personal risk to themselves, mm. he just... It's outrageous, Alison. He accuses them of promoting apartheid. It's absolutely shocking. And as we know from our inbox, I mean... We'll come to the emails later. We've had some fantastic, oh, deeply moving, deeply moving emails from some many older people and the children of older people. And they almost all say that they don't want to be the cause of suffering to their children or grandchildren. Many of uh, the over 70s, all the graphs show the over 70s, you know, they're very wised up. They are already taking precautions and shielding themselves. Of course they are. And the other thing is that we, we, we saw this week also this absolutely outrageous threat from the government, which is that if, you, if you're very good, you might be allowed to have Christmas. I mean, I, I, I can't say anything that's broadcastable in relation to that. I mean, you know, I do, I do think Christmas has been getting on pretty well without Matt Hancock for a couple of thousand years. Um, and Baroness Greengross, she said that elderly people would prefer, and I quote, death to a family-free Christmas, many older older people. And they must be allowed, you know, of course we must be shield shielding them. But when they prefer to take their own risks and if it means, you know, a lot of the people have said, if I die, I die, because the, these We've are We've had the, so many emails along those lines, so many emails so many. along those lines, unbelievably moving and gracious writing from so many citizens of Planet Normal. Hello, listeners. I'm Christopher Hope, interrupting your podcast listening to tell you about another show I know you'll enjoy. It's called The Trump Card, and it's a three-part series for the man who understands President Trump better than most, his friend Nigel Farage. Wow, what a job he did, Mr. Nigel Farage. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Farage has been to the White House more than many world leaders. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you. He said, you will be my friend for life. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off? You're dealing with somebody who, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Search the Trump card wherever you're listening to this podcast or go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump card. So it's been another crazy COVID-dominated week, Alison. You've been busy with interviews. You've been bringing new voices to Planet Normal. We've talked about Shinetra Gupta a lot. That interview last week attracted a huge amount of attention. So who are you beaming up to Planet Normal this week? Well, you know I've been doing my fumbling arts graduate best to try and understand this pandemic. And even with my thickest Velma specs on, it's been quite hard. So I thought Planet Normal listeners would be interested to hear one of the people who's helped me to make sense of what's going on. 
Ivor Cummins is a biological engineer. He worked for 25 years in corporate technical management. Ivor started out really in 2012. He was looking into the roots of modern chronic disease, heart attacks, diabetes and obesity. And he's got this great website, Liam, called The Fat Emperor. And The Fat Emperor (laughs) is an allusion to the story of, you know, the famous story that the emperor has got no clothes and is overweight, but none of his courtiers are big enough to tell him to get dressed. So I think with COVID-19, Ivor saw some parallels with those scientists who were afraid to say what they saw because of the aggressive scientific consensus. And he's made it his business to explain to normal people like us, like our listeners, the truth behind the propaganda. Ivor's YouTube video, Viral Issues, The Science, Logic and Data Explained, has been viewed almost a million and a half times, which shows what an appetite there is for this. He is, I think, one of the most formidable and fluent challengers of what he brilliantly calls this flu data. I love the flu data. (laughs) So I began by asking Ivor, what had he found out about the effects of lockdown? So we have five published papers now from around the world, which I've shared widely many, many times. Mm. And they've analysed the actual data in Europe of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID. And they're not modeling. They're looking at the actual real world data versus lockdown efficacy. And they pretty much resoundingly find that lockdown has a minimal impact, almost if any impact, on the viral curve, the rise and fall. It behaves pretty much like prior influenza seasons. It's highly Mm -hmm. seasonal. It goes up, rises fast, curls over as people are affected. And then comes down a long, slow decline, like a Gompertz curve is the mathematical function. So, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. And the studies from Israel, Oxford, I believe, Woods Hole in the US and other universities have pretty much come to the conclusion that the lockdowns occurred after the curve was already turning in most countries and did not impact the curve, the R number or the dynamics. Would you accept that? Back at the very beginning in March, when things were very uncertain, that there was this fear, wasn't there, that the NHS and the ICUs wouldn't be able to cope. Would you concede that lockdown was a a reasonable resort to try and build time for the NHS? Yeah, well, actually, at the time, I, I thought I was quite gracious because... I had seen the work of Professor Michael Levitt, the Stanford Nobel laureate in mathematical and chemical systems modeling. And he had worked out in February from the Chinese data and from Italian data verified what I mentioned, that the curve is independent of these measures largely. So he was able to tell Neil Ferguson that the modeling they had was out by a factor of 10 to 12. Mm. And I was pretty comfortable with that. However, I also understood the precautionary principle that this was a very new and scary thing and that why not lock down for a few weeks in any case, exactly as you say, because of the capacity. And if you exceed capacity, you actually genuinely will cause more people to be badly affected. So it was a very reasonable thing to do and I supported it. A few weeks later, when they wouldn't take it out, when the curve had clearly turned of its own accord Mm. and come down and there was plenty Mm. of capacity rapidly opening up, then I began to become very concerned. And that's when I really changed. And of course, when they brought in mandatory measures in July in the middle of the summer, when nothing was going on, even more concerned. So that's how I became a major skeptic, because the science seemed to be abused increasingly. 
and the common sense, logic, rationality, proportionality rapidly receded as the summer progressed. So Boris and Matt Hancock say that we can already see a second wave in Spain and France. Does your research support that? Yeah, well, the actuality in the data is Spain have seen not a second wave. The terminology is very important here. So briefly, the second wave really harkens back to 1918 Spanish flu. Mm. But the second wave there was a once in centuries occurrence in many ways. It happened out of season, was more severe than the first passing. But it's largely agreed that that was a second virus or second organism because influenzas can mutate significantly. Coronaviruses generally don't. So the prior SARS in the previous 20 or 30 years have never had second waves. So the real data, the latest data would say, why would you ever expect a second wave? Now, that said, in Spain over the last few weeks, mortality is creeping up. Mm. But these are people with the virus. And coronaviruses, we know from prior studies, become more prevalent in the winter. So you're going to get more people with it. But the real question is, are they directly being passed away by COVID Mm. or are they the normal phenomenon of increasing challenges going into the autumn and winter? And that's an enormous question. So we saw a rapid rise. We saw the fall, the tail, as, as we described, and we all saw it. But now we're just seeing a creeping. So it's blatantly obvious to anyone with any shred of logic that you would wait before taking any measures when you've got a creeping curve upwards Mm -hmm. and all the science suggests there's no way there would be a second wave anything like the first obviously you'd wait till your icu was very significantly rising a bit like the first time where you actually have to step in and take emergency measures because it's clear that you're heading for intensive care heavy loading and major issues and there'll be plenty of time to do that in the coming weeks or even november december Mm. if it occurred but what they're doing is enormous reactions when the numbers are still on the floor we've got covid mania to be quite honest can you deduce a motive for that i mean it's obviously not scientifically rational is it yeah the motive is very interesting to me um (laughs) Let's just say that after doing a disastrous lockdown, which the research subsequently showed to have a horrific cost benefit, i.e. nearly all cost and nearly no relative benefit, and going through all the summer of panic and bringing in mandatory masks and everything and then having months with nothing happen, clearly because nothing was going to happen. Now they're almost trapped in their own narrative that if you now kind of acknowledge it was a seasonal virus and what's happening this winter is kind of normal in quotes and comparable to prior years, of course, people will begin to question what on earth do we do? So I'm guessing that all the politicians and people in leadership now are trapped in a logic trap. And one way to maybe get out of it is to keep doing the measures, even if they don't really do anything, but afterwards say, well, the measures caused things not to be so bad this winter. So, you know, it's like there was an old story of the village where they have a tiger horn. And when they blow the tiger horn, it keeps tigers away. And after around six months, a a child says, but there aren't any tigers. (laughs) And the chief said, yeah, see how good the tiger horn is? So there's an element of that to it, that if you keep doing draconian measures in response to cases, you can always cover your tracks 
and say that those measures caused things to be okay. But of course, the scientific reality is it was going to follow its curve anyway. And just to put in there, Sweden is the gold standard Mm. of epidemic management. And they have got now intensive care on the floor and mortality for the last few months. They're nearly back to normal, effectively. And they actually followed the WHO guidelines that were published right up to the end of 2019. And it was very clear in those guidelines for pandemics, no lockdowns and no masks. Mm. And Sweden just did that. They followed the science. And look where they are now. The lowest rates in Europe, the society opened up and they're sitting pretty. They're not being smug about it. They should be in my mind because they followed the science and now they're home dry. Now in the winter, you know, it's normal for coronaviruses to rise with suppressed immune function in humans in the winter and other kind of UV and other effects. And I'm sure they're going to see some more, you know, impacts, but it's all going to be normal. It's all going to be like it's always been. But look at the rest of us. Everything's upside down. The trouble, though, Ivor, isn't it, with imaginary tigers is they have far from imaginary effects on elderly people's loneliness, young people going to university. Um, My son's at university at the moment. These insane draconian measures, as we know, uh, Liam's often said we could be at four million unemployed by Christmas. Those imaginary tigers can extract a heavy price, can't they? Oh, yes, I'd say the tigers this thing has created have been voracious. And I know that, you know, Professor Sikor and others have called out the Mm -hmm. undiagnosed cancers, people with early stage who will now end up getting treated late stage. We've got the depression, suicide, abuse of alcohol, the dreadful sadness of elderly people isolated. And I could go on and on and on. And and you've mentioned several, Mm -hmm. the economic destruction the stealing away of the lives of the youth, the next generation that we always used to cherish, all ruined. And ironically, the published analyses show it was largely for nothing, not zero. There would have been a bit of an effect with all the lockdowns, but utterly the cost benefit is disastrously in the wrong direction. That's quite shameful. So I have five children. Uh, We're very interested in the future. That's my other motivation besides hating when technical truth Mm. is twisted. (laughs) But, um, you know, I have doctors all over Ireland, even one group of surgeons, 250 strong. And one of their leaders has told me privately that they absolutely agree with everything I've been saying. And it's a disgrace. But they won't name themselves publicly because the environment has become that toxic. So we've got several hundred, 400 Belgian doctors have produced a letter saying what I'm saying to the government. We have 650 German doctors, same thing. So all over the world, doctors with bravery and standing for honesty and truth in science are calling this, but essentially ignored in the media. So the media have a huge, huge role to play in this. And I, I cannot believe what I've seen all summer. It's I never thought I'd see anything like this in my lifetime. It's extraordinary. Well, Planet Normal and The Telegraph are are doing their best, either to offer the other side. Have you not an epidemiologist or a medic? Your background is biochemical engineering. You worked for 25 years in corporate tech, technical management. What gave you the right to set yourself up as a COVID expert? Ah, yes. Citizen (laughs) scientists. I have to ask. you. No. And it's an absolutely uh, valid question, Alison, for sure. So I've spent 30 years in uh, complex problem solving leadership. I've led teams of up to 100 engineers around the world. And that involves integration, statistical inference, design of experiments, 
analysis, autopsy of complex components and all that stuff. And it's been my specialty my whole life until I moved into the health sphere a few years ago. Mm. So that integration skill, many doctors and professors in my network repeatedly make the same point. This is a thing that should not really be managed by doctors. Sure, treat the disease, but it's a data integration problem. So it integrates virology, epidemiology, immunology, mathematics, modeling, all in one big complex situation. And that requires integrators. So I'd say I'm actually perfectly placed. And that's why my data, all reference to government and official sources, has been so popular, because I can translate and integrate. Now, the other key point is I'm leveraging Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel laureate, <laughs> yeah. Professor Beda Stadler. He's the vaccine pope of Europe. That's his nickname. And he's the Fauci <laughs> of Switzerland. Dr. John Lee, professor of pathology in the UK. Mm. So I'm leveraging all the experts in all the fields and just helping to integrate the picture. And I'm perfectly placed for that. And that's just the reality. The epidemiologists are a one trick pony. They've got a narrow view. I used to manage specialties of all sorts, and they always or often miss the big picture. So the master technologist, my role is to integrate all the different specialties and make sure you get one coherent worldview picture. And that's what's missing in this completely. Can we just go back to the beginning of the epidemic? There were two rival British science camps on COVID, weren't there? We had Professor Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University. She thought there was already some pre-existing immunity in the population and that the fatality rate would be around 0.1%. And the other camp was led by Professor Neil Ferguson, we've mentioned him already, of Imperial College, who used a model to predict a fatality rate of 0.9% and up to 500,000 deaths. And it seemed to be that prediction that really rattled Boris and got him to change his course and lock down immediately. You've been highly critical, to say the least, of Neil Ferguson. I think one of the kinder things you called him was a lizard. <laughs> Talking of the government and sage, you cried, did that crazy man Ferguson corrupt them all, spreading fear like bubonic plague? What is Neil Ferguson's fatal attraction, Ivor, for all these people in that inner circle? Yeah, Ferguson is, I am angry on behalf of the children and the next generation and then everyone who's been hurt, mm. as we discussed. So I am quite yes. vitriolic, but it's absolutely earned. So there's a spectator, I think, article, if people Google six reasons why Neil Ferguson needs to answer questions. Mm. And he's done this for BSE and he's done it for, I think, the original SARS. He has a long, sordid history of being out by a factor of 10 to 100 or 200. Mm. I don't know why. It, it must be just the political structures where Imperial College and Ferguson are part of the club. And I, I don't know, Professor Levitt wrote to him in complete outrage back in February. Yes. And he would I'm not reply. Re yes. You said that Levitt wrote to him and told Ferguson, he had proof that they were 10 to 12 times off with their projections. And they basically they never came back to him. Well, actually, just a little more to the story, they would not come back. And Levitt knew this was of enormous importance. And we we're going to do the biggest own goal in history. Yeah. So he got a couple of Nobel laureates, got them on board from the Nobel laureates club, basically. <laughs> and he got them to write to Imperial College most sternly. And with that force coming to bear, there was a reply, but it was meaningless. They didn't care. 
So mm-hmm. Levitt proved it and he was proven correct without question on the actual real world data sense with just a variation of seasonality. He didn't know about that in uh, February, but for Northern Europe, absolutely. So the modeling from Imperial said for Sweden with light measures, it might be 60 to 80,000 dead and enormous ICU loading around 10 times their capacity. Mm. It was actually less than 6,000 and the ICU only got to 60% of capacity. And that was with extremely light distancing, to be quite honest, in retrospect. Videos from CNN in Stockholm in May the 6th show a lot less distancing than was even being um, put out to the media at the time. I mean, you created this sort of brand called the Fat Emperor, which I love the name. comes from the story, the famous story, that the emperor is naked, but none of his courtiers are brave enough to tell him so. And you had a lovely quote. You said, I realise that the fat emperor is also a metaphor for the corporate power that has funded science. It has grown fat on keeping dangerous dogma alive. Do you see some of that vested interest in our mishandling of COVID? Yeah, again, you got to watch out. The criticism comes thick and fast when you mention any real world realities of influence. They're not conspiracy theories. I often say in terms of pharma and food business, it's just business. It's not a conspiracy. Mm. I'm a corporate guy. I've been there. (laughs) So you have to be honest. We know what the WHO has been doing and it's been public. They have been driving this remorselessly. And there's lots of other official bodies that are international. And it seems that they've all got a lot to gain in terms of furthering their strategies, shall we say. So they're not going to, you know, take over the world, but they're genuine strategies that they have and are public and they're being enabled by this corona panic, like travel based on vaccine passports, tracking and tracing, Mm. you know, things that will help them manage the world better in their view. So a lot of that explains why all the countries seem to go a little crazy together. Yes. Some of that unity is because of international organizations having been handed the baton, effectively been handed the baton. I am definitely not a conspiracy theorist. I really think that most of it is cock up, to be honest. Mm. I first came across you, Ivor, because a GP told me I was pre-diabetic and your book, Eat Rich, Live Long, claimed that it could help reverse diabetes by changing your diet. Well, I have to say it did work really well. And then came lockdown when I was comfort eating at least seven meals a day and had my first glass of wine with the press briefing. Do you remember every afternoon at five (laughs) o'clock? Come on, Ivor Cummins, did you fall off the healthy wagon as well during lockdown? Mea culpa. Yes, I did. (laughs) Oh, the guru tumbles. Yeah. And, you know, I've spoken (laughs) on this many times. In 15, I wrote the book in 17, but I've been lecturing since 2012. But in 15, I led an enormous escalation or quality issue, you know, with hundreds of people working on it. The stress was incredible. 80 hours a week. I put on a load of weight and I broke the rules. And the six months I've had, I'm kind of working seven days a week on this. I've become utterly uh, entrenched in it. And it's very stressful to watch what's happened over the six months, as we've discussed. So the stress, the anger, the sense of really crazy time where the normal rules don't apply has also affected me like it's affected many. Too much wine, you know, too much food. But I know when we get through this, then I'll be able to apply the principles, as, as you see, and just fix the situation. But yeah. Yes. 
I, I really hope you'll come back to Planet Normal when this nightmare is over and talk to us about nice things like food and how to make ourselves feel better. I want to thank you because I too feel I share your anger because of our children and what's going to happen to them because of the handling of this crisis. How, how do you think we will look back finally on the COVID epidemic in 10 years? Yeah, well, if they manage to do revisionism and they somehow make everyone believe in the tiger horn, very sadly, it, we may look back and there may be confusion. And many of us in the know, experts around the world will know the facts. But let's say the facts come out, the science is upheld and we go back to being a scientific people and away from the unscientific thinking of the past six months. And it really does come out the realities that we discussed we look back and just realize that we took something new and scary and we lost the plot. We had good intentions, but the problem is that a few weeks to flatten the curve was bought into, even by people like me who were aware of the modeling and realizing they were incorrect. But after that, we stopped following the science even when we had the data. So I think we look back as it's been a dreadful period in human history where we literally walked away from the science and in a cognitive bias way, the leadership refused to consider the data as it changed and emerged, which is a true sign of unscientific thinking. When you block yourself from new data and you stick to an original paradigm and we look back and say that that was really quite disgraceful, I reckon. The science has been abused, says Ivor Cummings. More people will die as winter comes as they always do what he calls a normal phenomenon. We're seeing enormous reactions by the government when the numbers are still on the floor, what Ivor Cummings calls COVID mania. We have good intentions, Alison, but we've lost the plot. Yeah, gosh, what did you think of him, Liam? I love his clarity. He's translating on the behalf of people like us extremely complex data and he comes up with a wonderful image like the tiger horn the tigers are being kept away because they're blowing a horn but there are no tigers and I thought you know I'm a novelist with my other hat on and I I thought that was a an extraordinary image also the biggest own goal in history the omerta among the doctors keeping political silence because they don't want to speak out as people like Ivor and Professor Gupta speak out what, what did you make of him? Well, fabulous Dublin brogue. Oh, for, great. <laughs> for, for one thing. But I think he's he's actually very measured and careful. And we know from his reputation that everything he says, he's got umpteenth spreadsheets to back it up. He isn't a medic, as he says. What he is, is uh, somebody who collates data from a range of disciplines and brings analysis to bear. And he literally has a world-class reputation for doing that. I mean, I think I think there is going to be... A reckoning. The phrase that really grabbed me from his interview with you, Alison, was that the government is trapped in its own narrative. And one way to get out is to keep doing the measures and then say the measures were responsible for keeping deaths down. That's the analogy he's using of, of the of the tiger horn. He's not saying that this disease doesn't kill people, because of course it does. But what he's looking for is proper scientific analysis that's driven by rationality and logic rather than by an attempt to justify previous lockdown measures. And he also says, you know, makes a very good point that if you see your patients in the ICUs rising significantly, of course you 
take action. But what we're doing at the moment is we're taking this very, very expensive in every sense preemptive action and we're not even seeing those hospital cases. And they are predicting they're going once again with the Neil Ferguson worst case scenario when it's increasingly looking, as Shanet uh, Dragupta told us last week, it's increasingly looking as though a more moderate scenario is is, is likely. Um, I'm going to remind you, Liam, of my favourite planet normal phrase ever, orthogonal <laughs> to the orthodoxy. When we get the planet normal badge made, which of course we will. T-shirt, banner, posters, billboards across the country. <laughs> but I thought orthogonal to the orthodoxy, not only because I think it means being a bit of a pain in the ass, doesn't it? Which kind of suits me because uh, that's, that's basically my nature. But yeah, either... Ivor Cummings is orthogonal to orthodoxy and I I feel just a sense of gratitude because I share his disbelief and his anger because I see my children in their early 20s with their prospects shrinking by the day. I've had so many emails again from people seeking work. Do you know of any opportunities? My daughter's friend was applying for a job. There are 800 applicants for extremely modest positions. I mean, this is the world now that's being created by what looks more and more like a huge overreaction. So let's have some reader emails. Lots and lots of you are bailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and the emails have continued to come thick and fast, not least because Liam and I have been writing our Planet Normal column, which appears in the Telegraph and online for subscribers every Monday. So, so many to choose from this week, but... This one caught my eye. Alan Sutton Coldfield. Thank goodness the COVID-19 virus is contagious only after 2200 hours. My worry is, will it take notice of the clocks going back in a few weeks time? <laughs> Here's one from Alistair. I really enjoy listening to Planet Normal each week. You and Alison are fast becoming the political Richard and Judy of our times. <laughs> and if you think we only read out positive emails, here's one from Kate Allison. Kate says, my husband and I have listened to Planet Normal from the beginning. Recently, I felt you're wrong in your constant attacks on the government, especially Boris. Yes, mistakes have been made, but all of Europe has made mistakes. These people are doing their best. And quite frankly, if they don't try and stop the rise of infections, a lot more people will die. It won't be you that gets all the grief and blame. It will be Boris. Your rantings make me want to jump on the iPad and throw it out of the window. But as it belongs to my husband, I think he would be rather <laughs> cross. Thanks for that, Kate. Yeah, I think Kate sounds like she's a bit of a quiet fan, Liam. We've had so many moving emails from people who are dealing with the consequences of lockdown. Couldn't not read out this one from Robert in Evesham. Josephine and myself have recently celebrated our diamond anniversary from teenage sweethearts to 83-year-old sweethearts. Sadly, my wife is incarcerated in a very expensive nursing home paid for by our lifetime of careful savings. She is suffering from dementia and the love of my life I have not been able to hold in my arms since March. Liam, Liam can you read the next bit? As each day passes, our connection becomes more tenuous as she fails to connect with me on FaceTime and I'm no longer able to see her even in an outside location. I live alone and take great care to limit exposure to this virus and certainly pose a lot less risk to Josephine and her fellow inmates compared to the staff who come and go every day at home with their families and mixing with a wide range of the public. Josephine and I, we can't even touch each other, and I should make it clear that I would have her at home with me in a heartbeat, as I did for two years previously, 
except she is now totally disabled and I simply can't give her the care that she needs. All I ask is to be able to take care of the little personal things that I know she needs. Sorry to have rambled on, but I know you'll see the point I'm making. Crikey. Crikey, yeah. Come on, give us a funny one, quickly. That's uh, Robert and Josephine. Here's one, here's one, here's one. So this is from Jamie. Alison and Liam, just to let you know, you're responsible for me popping my podcast cherry. Uh, (laughs) And what an amazing experience at the age of 62 as well. So that's it for our latest voyage to Planet Normal. As we approach planet Earth, brace yourself for re-entry turbulence and strap yourself in for the enduring nonsense shockwaves. But keep the faith, because next Thursday, we're back for another voyage. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, after the release of each new Planet Normal podcast, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow residents of Planet Normal. That's you, listeners. You don't know this, Liam, but they've been demanding one-way tickets to Planet Normal, so we so we probably have to get those <laughs> printed. Yes, you can find that via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community. Click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11am and 12 noon on Thursdays. We'll be there replying to them. We would love you to come and join us. Email us with your thoughts on today's show or on anything else. Planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk And please tell others who might want to hear news and views from beyond the bubble if you're enjoying planet normal do leave us a five-star rating and maybe a short review on apple podcasts any questions about podcasts how to listen where to find the good ones check out the very helpful article explaining all things podcasts on the telegraph website you'll find the link in the show notes to this episode so thanks as ever to everybody for listening and as our beloved planet normal fades out of sight once more an earth hoves into view Thank you to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theo Leludis. So until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. And one final thing, citizens of Planet Normal. As a podcast fan, why not check out a new three-part podcast series called The Trump Card, in which Nigel Farage gives us the inside track on the US president, who he knows well ahead of the US election in early November. The Trump Card is hosted by our friend Chris Hope, the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, and you can listen to the first episode now at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump Card or search The Trump Card on your podcast app.